Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. For instance. I bet you didn't know that transportation journalists like the veteran Bernie Wagonblast lead secret double lives. It's time now for WABC Shadow Traffic. Grand I started as a traffic reporter in 1979. Two of the big New York stations I did were WABC, W-A-B-C. and 1010 WINS. We'll give you the world. All of us did multiple stations. You knew that you were on one station, say, at one minute past the hour, and then the next station at four minutes past the hour. But what WABC wanted to have was their own exclusive traffic reporter, not on any other radio station. So uh, I had no say in it, but I was told uh, before we started the broadcast that my name on WABC was going to be Jack Packard. Well, one Monday morning, on the George Washington Bridge, Lincoln and Holland Tunnel, introduced me, and here's Jack Packard with the traffic. I went through the whole report, and at the end, rather than saying this is Jack Packard, I blurted out, "I'm Bernie Wagonblast." I'm Bernie Wagonblast. Rather, I'm Jack Packard for Shadow Traffic. I knew I had made a big mistake. They put up the wrong cue card in front of me. God damn! Well, what can I tell you? We're going. And the uh, the disc jockey, of course, I caught him off guard. <laughs> I broke him up which I'm uh, kind of proud to say because not too many people could break him up on the air. Oh, poor Bernie. Oh, well, what can I say? Welcome to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I'm Stephen Dubner, and that was Bernie Wagonblast helping us introduce the theme of tonight's show, Things That Come Out of Your Mouth. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is a new inside-out kind of game show. Rather than quizzing contestants on what they may know, we ask contestants to tell us something we don't know, to tell us their IDKs or I don't knows. In the process, we should all get a little bit smarter. Now, to judge these IDKs and eventually to pick a winner, we have put together a panel of uh, extraordinarily bright people tonight. So would you please welcome the linguist and author John McWhorter, the heart surgeon and TV doctor Mehmet Oz, and the writer and broadcaster Frank Delaney. Very pleased to have the three of you here tonight. We'll start with you, John McWhorter. Here's what we know about you to date. We know that you are a linguistics professor at Columbia University and the host of the Slate podcast, Lexicon Valley. We know you've published 19 books, and are working on the 20th. So, John McBorder, tell us something we don't know about you. I'll bet you don't know that I play piano for a group cabaret show of obscure musical theater songs with my friends and family every few months down in Greenwich Village. Did not know that. Happy to Nobody know it. Nobody knows. Can you tell us where to find you? At the Cornelia Street Cafe, every now and then, $10 cover. You'll be <laughs> glad you came down. <laughs> All right. John McWhorter, thank you. Our next panelist, Mehmet Oz. 
Here's what we know. You are a cardiothoracic surgeon at New York Presbyterian Hospital. You're a professor of surgery at Columbia University. We also know that between surgeries, you somehow make a daily TV show that reaches a few million people, each of whom consider you to be their personal physician. We know that your advice occasionally leads to controversy, including a little tussle with some U.S. senators. So, uh, Mehmet Oz, tell us something we don't know about you. Uh, I am terribly allergic to wasps, and yet I have beehives on the property. So I put on those white outfits that look so foolish and go out there with the desire to make sure the bees populate the plants and the, the, the fruit trees we have. So taking my life into my own hands. Do you, uh, do you use the smoker, the bee smoker? Oh, you have to. I've always thought, have you ever thought about using it on your patients to calm them down? Because isn't that what it does to the bees? Uh, it, it actually panics the bees so they run away. They might have the same effect oh. on my patients. <laughs> All right. And our final panelist, Frank Delaney. Frank, here's what we know about you. You were born in County Tipperary, Ireland. We know you've written several beloved books about Ireland and that you host a podcast called Rejoice, which breaks down James Joyce's Ulysses word by word. And we know that you've written a rap about James Joyce. He wasn't born into a house of artistry and intellect. His father was a bombast who found it hard to get respect. Yet Jim, from the time he went to school and then to college, astounded all around him by the way he soaked up knowledge. (laughs) So, Frank Delaney, that's quite a lot to absorb already. (laughs) Can you tell us something else we don't yet know about you? Something you don't know about me, I once slept with a horse. Ooh. How many dates had you been on previously? (laughs) It was platonic, yeah. and she didn't kick or scratch, unlike some I could mention. And, and were you a stable boy? Uh, never stable. I was really quite wild. <laughs> I was... <laughs> How much more do you want to know? I, I think it's a great time to move on to the next part of our program, but I, I very much look forward to it. So on tonight's panel, we've got a Joyce and horse lover, <laughs> Uh, a linguist and a surgeon. I think we can make plenty of trouble with you guys up here tonight. It's time to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Here's how it works. Contestants from the audience will come on stage and deliver their IDKs. Panelists, it will be your job to ask questions, to seek out more information, whatever you'd like. And once all the contestants have presented, you will vote on a winner. There are three criteria you will use to judge the contestants' IDKs. Number one, does their IDK surprise you? Is it something you truly did not know? Number two, is it worth knowing? And number three, is their IDK demonstrably true? To help out with that demonstrably true part, I'd like to introduce you to our real-time human fact-checker. Would you please welcome Sean Ramosferum? Sean makes radio and podcasts with WNYC Studios, including More Perfect, the Supreme Court spinoff from Radiolab. Sean, what comes to mind when you think of tonight's show, things that come out of your mouth? Barf. I have a stomach flu. That is a, that, it's, it's a problem. Is there a doctor in the house? At least one. Before we bring up our first contestant, a final word to our panelists. It takes a lot of nerve, some courage for these audience contestants to try to get on stage and impress people as impressive as yourselves. So while you should be firm in your questioning, I also encourage you to be kind, if for no other reason than self-interest, because later on you, the judges, (laughs) shall also be judged when we spin the wheel of maximum danger. (laughs) 
All right, it's time to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Would you please welcome to the stage our first contestant, Matthew Clifford. Matthew, good evening. Where are you from? What do you do? Uh, I'm from Santa Monica, California. What do you do? Yes, yes. You be and the I'm mystery the co-founder man? and COO of a company you will learn about shortly. Uh, so you are being a little bit of a mystery man, a company we will learn about shortly. Uh, Matthew, remember, our panelists are very bright people, so what do you know that's worth knowing that you think they don't know? What is the most consumed fruit, and how much of it do we actually eat? In the U.S. or worldwide? In the U.S. In the U.S. Uh, is this fruit also the most consumed fruit in other countries? No. Does it have any use other than being eaten? <laughs> wow, that was early. That was quick. Yeah, it didn't take you long to get there, Frank, I have yeah. to say. Matthew, um, tell us uh, what is this fruit that we consume a lot of and how much of it we consume? In the U.S., uh, the most consumed fruit is bananas. And believe it or not, it's more than apples and oranges combined. I find that very hard to believe. I mean, aren't apples everywhere? I mean, supermarkets now have 10 kinds of apple, and there's only that, what, Cavendish kind of banana. Look at McWhorter throwing well, in the, the well, breed of the breed. banana there. I, say, the, I know that bananas are having an issue because the Cavendish now, which says we're going to show off a little bit, the Cavendish bananas <laughs> have a fungus that's affecting them oh, in no. South America. So it's actually compromising that, that supply, and that's not the original banana. That was made in order to avoid prior infections. Yeah, so what you're referring to is black cicatoka. And exactly. This, I was about to say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we learned that in medical school. It's usually third year. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and um, uh, unfortunately, when you're in the banana business and these articles from the New York Times resurface about once every three or four years, you get uh, hundreds of emails about, are your bananas going extinct? They're not going extinct? Just if anybody wants to know. Southeast Asia is a problem. Globally, we're okay. So we are to gather then that you are in the banana business. Mm, what yes. do you do? Yes. Yeah, so we have a business called Barnana. Uh, we collect all of the bananas that are ugly at farms that don't qualify to be sold as produce, and we make food-grade snacks out of them. So we save the ugly bananas. What does that mean, a food-grade snack? Like you mash up the banana and put it in with graham crackers and whiskey? I mean, that's new, new what product. I would do. New product right here, new product. Let me ask a, a question perhaps um, related. You, you say you reclaim or you buy mm. bananas that would otherwise go unsold. Talk about the share of that, uh, of the, of the non-sold banana market and how does that compare to other fruit? So it's actually, that's the quite of the shame and why our business exists is um, around 91 billion bananas are produced each year globally uh, and around 50 billion uh, are wasted, so mm. not even consumed. Uh, and that, that 50, What happens to them? Yeah, that 50 billion, it's in two buckets. Uh, agriculture and production, which are around 25 billion, that's actually when you're farming and chopping and harvesting, that, that doesn't qualify because they're ugly, that, fit, that 25 billion. The other 25 billion is uh, from port to distribution to retailer and then once it's sold to the consumer. Any man who stands up and looks you in the eye and talks about ugly bananas mm. really needs to be questioned very closely. Yeah. Please define an ugly banana. Yes. Um, so the ugly banana, uh, there's multiple varieties. Uh, essentially, on um, production, an ugly banana, a ding, a dent, a bruise, a scrape, a deformation. A ding, a dent, a bruise, a scrape. Yep. It's got a ring to it. You could rap to that. I'm the one who did the rap. We can go. We can go for it. Yeah. Well, let us move to the positive side. Describe a beautiful banana. Mm. Perfectly curved, yellow, slender, fits in your hand. Sounds sexist about. to me. Yeah. <laughs> 
Once I went to Nicaragua, and among the positive experiences that I had there was there were various well-formed, although rather miniature, bananas. Mm. And they were... (laughs) They were one of the most wonderful experiences I've ever had. I mean, they just exploded... You, you, not- are listen- you are listening to a man with a deprived boyhood. <laughs> you know, Dr. Oz, I mean, no offense, but we have the wrong doctor on stage. We yeah. need Freud, plainly for McWhorter and Delaney here. No American banana. It's never been the same. Why can't we have that here? I have never enjoyed a banana as much, and I don't have time to go back to Nicaragua. Yeah, so actually, it, it's quite interesting is when you go down to South America or north or south of the equator around the world, you get wild bananas, banana with seeds, apple bananas, dwarf Cavendish, ice cream bananas. There's a world of bananas out there. Sean, yeah. <laughs> Bananarama, we love to eat them, but we love to throw them away. What, do you, what can you tell us? It checks out. Uh, we eat more bananas than any other fruit, 26.2 pounds per year. Um, I found out, because there was so much banana talk and other talk that I wasn't so sure was about bananas, that uh, bananas can apparently cheer you up more than any other fruit because of the tryptophan plus uh, vitamin B, which produce serotonin. Can, you, can we? I think it's true, but it's partly the shape. It's phallic. <laughs> oh, yeah. Matthew Clifford, thanks so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Panelists, later you will be asked to rank all our contestants and pick a winner. For now, would you please welcome our next contestant, Karen Gilfrey. All right, Karen, what's your story? I am an operatic mezzo-soprano and a voice mm-hmm. actor. Let's start with what do you want to tell us that you think we don't know? All right. All you have to do is tell me what voice type, like soprano, tenor, countertenor, baritone, is being played in this recording. Well, Karin, you told us you're a mezzo. Should we assume, then, that's a mezzo-soprano singing? It is not. Hmm. Is it an alto? It is not an alto. Are we to venture that it might be a non-female human being? Perhaps. Is it a castrato? Castrato. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if the gasp was associated with your cleverness or the fear of the male half of the audience. But it was a gasp. Let me know for the record. Was it a castrato? It was a castrato. Frank Delaney. Tell us more. This is a recording of Alessandro Moreschi from 1904, Hmm. who is really the only castrato ever recorded in history. And this this is a very old recording. But in the 18th century, thousands of young boys were castrated before puberty to uh, maintain their high voices. And the result in adulthood is a voice that's really like no other. It's the immature larynx of a boy combined with the... Uh, resonant vocal tract of a fully mature man. The other interesting thing about the castrati were that um, the the growth plates on the end of their bones never fused because of a lack of hormones. And so they ended up with these really long limbs and huge barrel chests, which gave them incredible lung capacity and breath control. Between 1720 and 1730, it's estimated that 4,000 boys per year were castrated in the name of music, and most of them really didn't make it. The castrati who made it were absolute rock stars of their day, but for the ones that didn't make it, 
Um, the church forbid them from marrying, and uh, there was really very little they could do outside of music. The practice of castration for musical purposes was finally banned in Italy in 1870, which brings us to 1904, and this recording of Moreschi, who was one of the last castrati ever. Mehmet, if someone came to you or another doctor at Columbia and wanted a castration for musical purposes in this day and age, what, what happens? You wouldn't be able to do it. There has to be a medical indication. The, the patient themselves are not benefited. The challenge would happen if a parent brought a child. And since the child is a minor, the decisions about what to do for the whatever the child becomes a, a challenge. But I think it'd be very hard to find a physician who would go against their, their personal beliefs on a child, even in the setting. Mm. And back in the day, it was usually the second son in a family because the first son got all the land. The second son really had nothing. And if it was a, a poor family, they thought, ah, we'll do this and maybe he'll be able to have money and stardom. But now I think, Dr. Oz, because there are so many horrible side effects associated with not having any testosterone, if a person were to have an accident and lose their testicles, you would probably give them testosterone sure. injections later in life. So this voice type really does not exist at all anymore. Karen, what's the comparable voice range of a castrato? A, a mezzo-soprano or, or a countertenor. Hang on a second. Karen, you're saying that the range of the castrati was similar to a mezzo-soprano, which you happen to be. That's right. You seem to know a lot about castrati and what they sang. Do you feel like, uh, can you, would you like to sing something? Something in the style of? Sure, or, I, yeah? can sing, I can sing something for you. Um, I will sing an aria written by Handel, you know, hallelujah, Handel, <laughs> for, the, for the castrato Senesino. It's an aria called Ombra Maifu, and this is just part of it. That is, that is good stuff, Karen. That's absolutely gorgeous. Karen, you, you sound better than the guy on the recording, and not just because <laughs> you're here and he's on a cylinder. Was he older then? Are we not only listening to a castrato, but a castrato in his 50s or something like that? Yeah, which makes exactly. it even that's exactly eerier. Right. Wow. That's like listening to Grover Cleveland, mm-hmm. which, you, which you can, but... He what, sounded wait, better. That's like Grover what? Cleveland how? In that you can, there's a recording of Grover Cleveland shouting nervously into a horn because he's being recorded. And that's the only way that you can, as you've always wanted to, listen to Grover Cleveland I talking. I thought you were implying something about Grover Cleveland's testicular fortitude <laughs> that uh, was, was unknown. Sean, uh, 
the uh, the disappearance of the castrati. What can you tell us? It all, it all looks good. I've been looking at pictures of uh, castratori, which is the the tool used mm-hmm. for castration. It's mm-hmm. like little silver shears. Mm-hmm. Which also sounds like the meanest, like, mafioso in the world. Castratori. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the castratori's coming for your balls. That, that's as far as I got. That's <laughs> as far as you got. <laughs> Karin Gilfrey, great stuff. Thank you so very much. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Celine Barrell. Good evening, Celine. Tell us a little bit about yourself, please. So I'm Celine Barrel. I'm French, and I am born and raised in Grasse, a city of perfumes. And I'm a perfumer for International Flavors and Fragrances, uh, which is a fragrance creation house. And uh, my job is also known as being a nose. <gasps> You're a nose. We've all yes. heard about the nose. You're the nose. Yes, I am. Uh, Celine, what would you like to tell us about tonight? Well, how can you get rich by just walking on the beach? And we are to assume that maybe this has something to do with your profession? Oyster pearl finding a giant squid. It's, uh, uh, sperm, whale, sperm whale teeth. Sperm ambergris. That's really what? the answer? Yes, it is. Oh. Ambergris. I always how, wanted how to find that because I think about disgusting creatures in the sea, and I've always imagined what it would be like to slip in that stuff as you were walking down the beach. The beach is oh a scary place. Goodness. It's like Twitter. <laughs> so yeah, I've always thought of it. Is that really? Yeah. Yes, it is. But you would not sleep on it on the beach. <laughs> Why? Because what it is? So it's um, a waxy substance which is being produced by the digestive system of the sperm whale. Yeah. Uh, why do they produce that? It's because nature being well done, when they eat squid, um, the beak of the squid is producing an irritation in the stomach, and so they secrete this fat or this wax that go around the squid beak, and it make it easier to expel. That's what it is. Ocean. That's what it is. Because there's squid that are 50 feet long. No one seems to care about that but me. But that's, <laughs> that's what happens to the beaks? Wow. When the sperm whale is regurgitating the, the ambergris, uh, the ambergris is then floating at the surface of the ocean. And it's how big? You can have, normally it's kind of uh, small. We are talking about a quarter, half a pound, but it can be as big as 10 pounds, 20 pounds. This is rare, more rare. And uh, so it floats at the surface of the ocean and by the fact of floating on the ocean, it's losing the animalic smell from the whale and gaining all the sun-drenched and salty marine smell, and it's becoming beautiful. And the stream is bringing it onto the shore. And if you're one of those lucky men walking on the beach and who found a piece of ambergris, you bring it to some specialist. And in 2013 in England, a piece was found of 6.5 pounds and was sold for $130,000. Yes. And who Ooh. buys it? For what? It's just to collect or...? So um, it's been used for centuries, essentially for uh, medicinal purpose. It's also a very potent aphrodisiac. And it was also used uh, for lavish gifts to be given to royalties. 
beats a cargo of ugly bananas any day. Yes. <laughs> now, now, because it has a beautiful smell, it made its way to the perfume industry and became one of the most sought-after smell. Um, it smells like very... That musky, right? Yes, it's yeah. described as being animalic, musky, earthy, sweet balsamic, and it's extremely sexy. It's an excellent fixative for perfume. It's, you will find it in many ambery perfume. And, um, and again, this is all derived from whale puke, from a squid puke. From whale puke. So it starts in the stomach of the whale when it's found, it's, uh, when it was found at the time when it was the whaling industry and that they killed the whale, what was inside was black, but you cannot use it in perfumery. So... Ambergris has been banned since uh, 1973 by the Washington Accords, which is protecting the endangered species. Uh, so the only uh, way to, to work nowadays with ambergris is uh, the perfumer how to, to invent, to reconstitute a smell with a kind of uh, molecule, uh, synthetic or natural uh, molecules. Could you, since you're a, a nose you could, I assume, tell the difference between legit ambergris and synthetic ambergris, yes? Yes. Of course, yes. Does it, it's, <laughs> it's, does it smell the same on everybody? <laughs> uh, it depends on the pH of your skin. Um, so, yes and no. It's different on every single skin, but at the same time, it's quite the same too. <laughs> and when it doesn't smell good, what does the smell like? Uh, so it has a very fecal smell that is described in a more poetic way as being animalic. Uh, <laughs> so it starts fecal, but then with the, with the years and floating on the ocean, it's gaining all this complexity, which is being much more solar and more musky. So the fecal aspect is really fading and it's gaining in this beautiful uh, fragrance. Mehmet, you have a long history of looking into and working with alternative or complementary or Eastern medicines. So I'm curious, did you know about ambergris, whether it's an aphrodisiac perfume or particularly as a, a treatment, medical treatment of any kind? The major untapped resource for healing, I believe, is smell. Because smells affect our brain in profound ways and it bypasses the supertutorial cortex to get there. You know, we don't process smell. That's why when you smell something that reminds you of being a child, it gives you goosebumps or butterflies in your stomach. So it's a powerful tool to allow you to overcome anxieties. I mean, people use eucalyptus and lavender, not usually ambergris, but maybe we'll start using more of it now. But it was, it was used, for example, in France, they had what they called the royal tincture, and it yeah. was uh, healing Louis XV of impotency and stuff like that. Is it a male aphrodisiac or a female aphrodisiac? Both, both. Celine, did you bring any of this ambergris to us? <laughs> you could win the whole thing right here. <laughs> Sean, please. Uh, ambergris. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Apparently, a serving of eggs and ambergris, I'm going to go with the French pronunciation, was uh, reportedly King Charles II of England's favorite dish. He was like You ever that. hear that? I knew that the Brit always had weird taste in food. <laughs> <laughs> Celine Burrell, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. 
It's time now for a short break. When we return, more contestants. Our panelists will pick a winner, and then we spin the wheel of maximum danger. If you'd like to be a contestant on a future show or attend a future show, please visit tmsidk.com on social media. You can find us at tmsidk underscore show. And please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I'm Stephen Dubner. Tonight's theme, things that come out of your mouth. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Pierre Elias. Nice to have you, Pierre. What do you do? I'm a resident physician at New York Presbyterian Columbia University. (laughs) What a coincidence. (laughs) So um, I like that we're going doctor to doctor here, Columbia style. (laughs) Uh, This should be good. All right, the mic is yours. What do you know? So my question is, how long do you think the average doctor visit lasts? Well, it depends on what the complaint is. Surely? (laughs) (laughs) Any visit with you, I'm sure, would last at least 45 minutes. (laughs) Well, I know the average physician interrupts a patient within 23 seconds. That's what's often reported. I always feel rushed at the doctor's office. They want me to get out of there, so I don't go much. They've tried several times to stop me leaving. (laughs) (laughs) What were you trying to take with you? I'm not telling you. Uh, Pierre, so what's the answer? So so the answer is is 14 minutes. And uh, if you think that's bad, on the inpatient side... Resident physicians who normally work 80 to 100 hours a week only spend 12% of their time in front of a patient. So where is all of this time going? And what I've learned is that medicine is storytelling. That's been true for thousands of years. But what's changed is all the documentation, the billing, the authorization, which is essentially consumed all the time doctors have. So there's none left for patients. And so there is a way to fight against this which is if we can learn the templates that physicians use and use them as patients, we can actually get a lot more out of the visit. And so there's a universal template that physicians are taught in medical school and they use from there on out. It's called the history and the physical. And I've always wished that my patients would use it and knew about it. And it's actually pretty simple. Uh, So you come in with a chief complaint, like abdominal pain, and then you tell me about the history of the present illness. Something like a 39-year-old with diabetes, hypertension, and gallstones is presenting with two weeks of abdominal pain. And then you, you localize the symptom. And uh, the mnemonic that I teach is called LICSTICMA, L-Q-S-T-C-M-A. But it's location, the quality. That's the worst mnemonic I've ever heard. Yes. I'm sorry. No, I love I'm, you. I'm I love sure your it's message. It's not really a mnemonic. <laughs> not really a mnemonic. It's a gnomonic. It's, it's, it's not even an acronym. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, Pierre. That was wrong of all of us. Proceed. <laughs> L-Q-L-Q-S-T-C-M-A. Also, I love that I got to interrupt the doctor once. For once. Pierre, proceed. So the idea is, you know, location, the quality. Is it an aching pain or a stabbing pain? How severe is it? Five out of ten. Started three weeks ago and it's been getting worse. The context around it, any modifying factors, and then any associated symptoms. That's the way to describe symptoms. And you should document this because it's really valuable information in helping diagnose someone. 
And then you tell us a little bit about the past medical history, what diagnoses have you had in the past, and your meds. Mm. Mehmet, you're uh, obviously a doctor a generation ahead or so of Pierre. Is this familiar? Is it unfamiliar? This is the single biggest problem, I think, in medicine. And we, interesting, I'm out, just a quick story. I was taking care of a patient a few years ago, and he was there with his wife, and I asked him as part of my history if he'd ever had a colonoscopy. And he thought about it. He looked at his wife, looked back and said, I, I don't remember. I said, they took something the size of my thumb and shoved it up your bottom. Do you remember that? And he turned to his wife and he asked her if she remembered because he didn't. <laughs> I mean, what's the next question you ask? You know, it does become veterinary medicine. Pierre, a serious question. Um, doctors, probably of your father's generation, Mehmet, yes. uh, were always advised that one of the first things you do when a patient presents, comes into the office, is first thing you do is you make sure you touch them. Are you still advised as young physicians to do that? Touch them. Take their hand, stroke their arm, whatever. In a platonic way, touch them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's a fascinating thing, and it's one of those topics that we keep going back and forth on. I think we know it's important, but the amount that we use the physical exam has lessened so much, and I think kind of disappointingly so, because sometimes there's not a lot you can actually do clinically for a patient, but you can make them feel like you care about them. Pierre Elias, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. Would you please welcome our, it pains me to say this, final contestant tonight, Michelle McSweeney. Good evening, Michelle. Uh, Who are you? What are you doing here? I am an associate research scholar in the Center for Spatial Research at Columbia University. All right. What do you have? Um, So my question for you is, um, what does LOL really mean? I I thought it meant lots of laughter. It can't mean that or you would the best. Lots of love? Someone is always supposed to say, well, doesn't it mean laughing out loud? Someone is always supposed to say that. Thank you. (laughs) I think I'm supposed to say it. So, yeah. So when you ask what it really means, is that the answer you were looking for? So it is what it stands for. Laughing out loud. Laughing out loud. Definitely what it stands for. It also, in Winston Churchill's time, meant lots of love. You can see that in his letters. Thank you for the ageist reference. It was not ageist at all. (laughs) That line's actually my dissertation, so not ageist. Lots of love. (laughs) Lots of love, lots of laughs. Laugh out loud. Um, So it does stand for laugh out loud, but it's probably not what it means. So when people text LOL, they usually text something like this. Hey, want to go to the mall with me? No, go with Mary. I'm sick. LOL. So it's really not funny to say that you're sick. Nobody really is like laughing out loud because they're sick. Um, So it probably means something else. And linguists have known for quite a while that it doesn't quite mean laugh out loud, but nobody's been able to capture all of the, all the environments it appears in. So to better understand what it does mean, I looked at a corpus of over 44,000 text messages sent by uh, young adults in New York City, right? <laughs> Amazing. And uh, <laughs> it occurred in about 12% of the messages. So I went through and tagged those messages, both for what they mean as well as what they do. And I found that LOL occurs in messages of empathy. It occurs in messages of flirting. It occurs in messages of softening a request. And what all those things have in common is that the literal meaning doesn't match the purpose. So the purpose of the message is for something other than what it exactly says. 
So to verify that idea, I went through the other messages and looked at places where the literal meaning does match the intended purpose. So like when somebody texts, I love you, or good morning, or is exchanging information, things like that, right? And it never occurred there. There were no good morning, LOL, or I love you, LOL, none of that. <laughs> um, <Good morning>. So <laughs> what I take away from that is that it means reinterpret this message based on the context, because it doesn't mean what it says. And that's important because it's the first time that we're seeing a pragmatic marker that's not a discourse marker in written English. A pragmatic marker that's not a discourse marker. So John McWhorter was the only person in the room with any idea <laughs> you what you were talking about. I understand that at all, yeah. Uh, but can you <laughs> what does that mean, either of you? Well, real, a pragmatic marker means that there is a part of language that's about conveying emotion, conveying empathy for looking into other places in the mind of the person that you're talking to. We're not taught that that's grammar. We're taught that you mark the past tense, that you say a before a consonant and and before a vowel. But there's this whole other level of how we talk, such as very quickly, totally. She's totally going to come. It doesn't mean she is going to come in actuality. Totally means you and I both know that some people think she's not coming when in fact she is. That's what totally means. So LOL has become one of those things. Michelle, I'm sorry. I should, I should be letting no, you. No, that's exactly, exactly what Because as you know, I've never thought about texting or given a talk about it or anything. <laughs> no. This is all new no. on me. And so I'm just stimulated by what you're telling us. Michelle, <laughs> have they said anything about R-O-T-F-L-M-A-O? Um, rolling on the floor, laughing my ass off? Yeah. That didn't occur in the, in the corpus. Oh. L-M-A-O did, laughing L-M-A-O. my ass off. What's the second biggest competitor to LOL? Oh, my gosh. It was... There wasn't one. OMG. Exactly. (laughs) So it was actually um, LOL and then OK, but I threw out OK because it's That was just all the people from Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really, a lot of Oklahoma imports in New York. Since you're the the one who brought up the ageist reference, (laughs) what was the Victorian equivalent of LOL? Oh, (laughs) see, that's what I think is interesting is I don't think there was one. I think that it's the rise of text messaging is creating this environment where we need to be able to express things that aren't literal on a written platform. And in Victorian age, we were writing letters and they were long form and they were like very well structured, but we're not doing that anymore. We're writing these short bursts that come in serial iterations. So what should LOL say? Um, If there was a replacement for LOL that actually more accurately described to... I don't know, people from Frank's generation. That's an interesting question. I think... Um, That's going to cost you. <laughs> <laughs> for me, so, frankly, what, what's, what's an alternative to LOL that would work? An alternative... Um, you could create it right here. You could witness yeah. it happening with Stephen Dubner right on the show, right this moment. Would it be Maybe. something like feeling very anxious and depressed and don't quite know how to say it? Whoa. LOL. I was going to go with um, R-I-T-M, Ritmum. Reinterpret this message. Yes, oh. something mm. like that. R-I-T-M. R-I-T-M. Pierre gave it to us. He had L-Q-S-T-C-M-A. <laughs> oh, yeah, we need to remember the acronym, so, yeah. <laughs> Sean, uh, the true meaning of LOL, what do you know? Yeah, my, my English professors are going to kill me for this, but I think the only way to really settle this is to go to urbandictionary.com, which is all I ended up doing while you guys were talking about LOL. What, uh, what is their version of this? So the have? top definition on urbandictionary.com for LOL, which has been upvoted 45,000 times, is uh, the word 
LOL is an abbreviated form of the name Lawrence, like, hey, lol, you all right? Or... (laughs) (laughs) There you have it. The internet. God for the internet. Wow, we're we're all a village now. Wow. Michelle McSweeney, thank you so much. Let's give Michelle and all our contestants a hand, please. Great job. And now it is time for our panelists to rank their favorite IDKs and to pick a winner. Okay, remember the three voting criteria. Did the contestant tell you something you truly didn't know? Was it worth knowing? And just how true was it? So, who will it be? Michelle McSweeney and the true meaning of LOL. Pierre Elias and how to talk to your doctor. Celine Burrell and Ambergris or Very Precious Whale Puke. Karen Gilfrey and we'll call it When We Cut Low, They Go High. (laughs) Or Matthew Clifford and Wasted Bananas. While the votes are being tallied, we'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll announce a winner and we will make the panelists compete against our contestants when we spin the wheel of maximum danger. I'm Stephen Dubner. This is Tell Me Something I Don't Know. If you want to be a contestant on a future show, please visit tmsidk.com. The panelist votes are in. Once again, thanks to all our contestants. The top three vote-getters joining us back up on stage are... In third place, Karen Gilfrey, when we cut low, they go high. The story of the castrati. In second place, with her IDK about the most precious puke, Celine Barrell, the story of ambergris. And tonight's winner of Tell Me Something I Don't Know, would you please welcome back to the stage with her IDK about the true meaning of LOL, Michelle McSweeney. I'd like to say congratulations to all of you. Thanks for bringing your IDKs onto our stage tonight for our winner. What prize could we possibly give you, Michelle, that's commensurate with the wisdom that you've dispensed tonight? Well, you remember back at the top of the show when we heard from the traffic reporter Bernie Wagonblast, also known as Jack Packard? Well, not only did Bernie Wagonblast do multiple stations, he did multiple modes of transportation. And anyone who's taken the New York City subway will know him best as the voice that tells you to do this. Please stand away from the platform edge. That's the man. So, Michelle, in honor of Mr. (laughs) Wagon Blast's classic subway announcement, we are renaming the Columbus Circle subway station the Michelle McSweeney (laughs) Circle subway station. Okay? (laughs) Now, we actually can't officially do that. But we will make up an authentic-ish sign to that effect that can hang in your home or office. Congratulations. Wow. Thank you. And let's show our appreciation one more time for all our contestants. Great job. It's time now for the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know, in which we flip the script and turn our panelists into contestants. They will team up, the three of them together, to tell us something we don't know and compete against a team made up of the top three contestants. But neither team will have a topic of their own choosing. They get to tell us something we don't know on a topic chosen completely at random 
from what we like to call our wheel of maximum danger. That's right. It is a spinning wheel with 12 topics that relate to tonight's theme, things that come out of your mouth. Our fact checker, Sean Ramosferum, will spin the wheel to pick a topic first for the panelist team and spin again to pick a different topic for the contestant team. We'll then give each team a few moments to think and then tell all of us something we don't know on that randomly chosen topic. And our live audience will pick a winner on the very slight chance that someone on this stage will try to fabricate an answer. Remember, we do have a real-time human fact checker right over there. So, Sean, let's please spin the wheel first for our panelist team of John McWhorter, Dr. Mehmet Oz, and Frank Delaney. Here we go. Go vomit, vomit, vomit. Ooh, yodeling. (laughs) Bummer. I don't have anything to say about that. So close. I have to tell you, that category so barely made the cut. And and now I'm so glad it did. All right, uh, Sean, would you please spin and pick a topic for our contestant team, please? They're going to get nursery runs. Yes, of course. Yes. Oh. Oh. No, nursery rhymes. Nursery rhymes it is. I wanted that. Thanks. It looks like nursery rhymes. It's a little too coincidental, isn't it, don't you think? All right. For the panelist team, yodeling. For the contestant team, nursery rhymes. All right, everybody. Good luck. We'll give you a little time now to come up with something good. While the panelists and contestants are putting their heads together, let me say this. We would really appreciate it if you would tell your friends and family, maybe even your enemies, about this new show of ours. Also, subscribe and give it a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to come tell me something I don't know, or if you want to be in our studio audience, please visit tmsidk.com. You can also find us on all the usual social media outlets at TMSIDK underscore show. Just don't, don't give them too much information. <laughs> okay, time's up. Panelists and contestants, let me say right now, it's been an absolute delight having all of you here tonight. And in our eyes, you are, of course, all winners. But technically, when it comes to the wheel of maximum danger, there can only be one winner. So let's start with the panelists. John McWhorter, Mehmet Oz, Frank Delaney, tell us something we don't know about yodeling. What is the connection between Dallas and yodeling? Dallas, Texas. Dallas, Texas. The connection between Dallas, the Texas. Cowboys yodel in their folk, folk music, which is true. Warm, but not very. We're going to give you a little, little help. Um, you may not have had a reason today to think about goat herds. I'm giving you one now. If that isn't a clue, I don't so, know what it is. Tell us. <laughs> Do you need help? Yeah. All right. It's well, a TV show called Dallas. It was very popular at a certain point. Its star was Larry Hagman. Who was an actor. JR. He's dead. His mother was a famous performer and singer. played... His, his mother was a famous yodeler. No. Well, that's no. something that she did at a certain point. Because she was a performer in various musical theater productions. And she played Maria and the Sound of Music. At the age of 50-something. And sang? The Lonely, the lonely Goat Herd. Yes. 
Wow. And she yodeled. So that's the connection. 1,800 degrees of separation. (laughs) (laughs) You can hear Mary Martin doing it on iTunes, Lonely Goat Herd. And she was the mother of Larry Hagman, who delighted the world as JR on the television show Dallas. Team contestant, it's now your turn to present. And (laughs) so contestants, uh, Michelle, Karen, and Celine, you want to tell us something we don't know about nursery rhymes. Did you know that Mother Goose was actually a real woman who is buried in Boston? Did not know that fact. Tell me more. I did not know that. That's all I know. (laughs) (laughs) Was her name like Abigail Goose or something? I I don't know her actual name. Just Mother Goose. Yeah. Before we ask our live audience to vote, Sean, let's check in with you. What can you tell us? Mother Goose, real lady, buried in Boston. My computer just froze when I tried to Google the first one. It was like, stop, stop. It was too many tears. Uh, but this one, the, uh, the Boston thing seems like it's maybe apocryphal. Uh, despite evidence to the contrary, there are reports from the notorious in Boston that uh, the original Mother Goose was a Bostonian wife of an Isaac Goose. Uh, <laughs> that means we win by default. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so I guess we got to give it to to Dallas. (laughs) We don't have the authority to give it to them, unfortunately. That's right. The audience has the authority. Now, remember, audience, there are three criteria on which you're voting. Did they tell you something you didn't know? (laughs) Was it worth knowing? No. (laughs) And was it even the slightest bit true? Okay? I forgot about that. It's time now for our live audience to pick a winner. So get out your phones and follow the texting instructions on the screen. So who will it be tonight, the panelist team or the contestant team? All right, we'll give you a few moments to vote. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the live voting has closed. The votes have been tallied, and I have been handed the results. I... um, I can't believe I'm saying this, but tonight's winner with 57% of the vote is Mother Goose was a real lady in Boston. Which just goes to show you that yodeling gets no respect whatsoever. But congratulations to our team of contestants. Thanks to all of you You so much. We thank our panelists. We thank our contestants. And most of all, we thank you for coming to play Tell Me Something. Coming up next week on Tell Me Something I Don't Know, the comedian Keisha Zoller, the author of Grit, Angela Duckworth, and former White House chief economist Austin Goolsby. The theme, passion plays. Ah, phones. They're like the baby I don't have, but I have. But it's also the baby you throw out every year for a newer baby. (laughs) That's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in partnership with The New York Times. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, and Brian Gutierrez. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. Thanks also to Andrew Dunn, Dan DeZula, Jalenta Greenberg, and to Dan Schreiber, our transatlantic game doctor. Thanks also to the New York Times, especially Charles Duhigg, Kinsey Wilson, Samantha Hennig, Diantha Parker, and Lisa Tobin. And to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or at nytimes.com slash IDK. 
You can find us online at tmsidk.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. 